this is like picking a favorite child, know. you know, like yeah. I, I love all of them equally. <laughs> yeah. Like, or at least don't tell the others I said, I didn't you know, pick the favorite. <laughs> I mean, there, there's, there's definitely no fa- You know, what's interesting about our space is you, people judge you by each individual investment, but for us, we have to think about this on a portfolio basis. I mean, I, I don't fully know which way the ecosystem is going to go. You know, does the legalization wave take hold way quicker than we ever thought? And then a lot of the biotech investments are rendered moots. I mean, it's just, it's so tough to tell. So we, you know, we pick different investments knowing the future is very murky, um, but knowing that, it, you know, if the future heads any one of multiple ways, we're going to do really well because one or two of these companies, even if others fail, others are going to do incredibly well. This is Lit and Lucid, your after-work de-stress smoke sesh podcast. I'm your host, Lit. And I'm your host, Lucid. And we're going to take you on a journey. A journey to discover the truth and find the balance. Every week, we get deep on those thought-provoking topics that ooze out of the cannabis universe. But we also keep it real by illuminating important issues and people in today's culture. So kick back. Consume your favorite cannabis products. And get cozy cozy in the the Lit and and Lucid lifestyle. Welcome everybody to the Lit and Lucid podcast. We are here halfway through the season, so thanks for joining us. Today we have Tim Schlitt. He is the co-founder and partner at Palo Santo, a U.S.-based psychedelic investment fund. Tim has an extensive knowledge investing across life sciences and healthcare services, as well as having a lifelong passion for understanding and improvement treatments for CNS disorders. Having invested in a wide variety of companies in the space, Palo Santo's diversified investment fund is helping to increase the supply of clinically effective and accessible mental health and addiction treatment solutions in today's world. This is the first time we're talking to a psychedelic investment fund, so we're super excited to have Tim on the show to share his knowledge and educate us all on what is on the horizon for the psychedelics in the healthcare industry. So with that, what's up, Tim? Nothing much. Glad to be here, guys. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me on. Totally. You know, we are excited to have you on. We've been waiting for this one for a while just because it is a new frontier. It's something that we are interested in. And I really think that, you know, ultimately our whole our MO here is just, you know, mental health and, and making awareness around it. And so I really I think what's really starting to percolate in this space is really geared towards just mental health in general. So it's just good to see that, you know, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of potential out there for for some healing and some, you know, some growth for people. So um, before we get too crazy down into that, we always like to just kind of set the stage here and, and kind of start with basics and, and beginnings and everything. So we're just curious, you know, tell us about your journey into the psychedelic space and how, you know, Palo Santo got started. Yeah. So my, um, kind of came, came into this world from two different directions. One, um, you know, is professional career. And then the other is, is personal story here. And, and certainly a personal attachment to mental health, but professionally, um, as you guys hit on, started my career in investment banking, focused on life sciences, moved over to private equity, focused on healthcare services. So have been in the healthcare domain um, my entire career. And I think it's been interesting to see psychedelics go more of a healthcare track rather than a recreational track like we saw in cannabis. And I think that's probably the right path for these to take for the time being. So, um, but with that said, that that world is a very different world of business. I mean, the way you evaluate companies, um, the way you think about the pharmacology and just, you know, looking at clinical and preclinical data, it's just a very different evaluation process there. And then personally, um, I've had a deep attachment to mental health my entire life. I, I had my own battle 
um, 15 years ago with depression. And, you know, when you go into a darkness like that, that's something no person should ever have to, to face and, and went through the current standard of care. saw what that was like getting put on fluoxetine. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the whole rigmarole of that talk therapy and in so many ways realized just how lacking that was. And so I always maintain this fascination with psychology and psychiatry because when you see a brain break you just you, it makes you try to think about what are the pieces that make that thing work and and how how does the engine you know how does the engine break there so always maintain that fascination now fast forward to about 4 years ago and started seeing a lot of really interesting clinical data coming out of Johns Hopkins NYU Imperial College London and I'm really attuned to data and especially clinical data in the life sciences world once you put things in humans and start to see results, that's where it gets really interesting. And that's where you get a good directional sense of where this is headed. And I said, hey, there's there's something here worth looking at. Um, and that was really the start of this journey. And it's eventually snowballed into a commercial interest. I think COVID was the big catalyst here um, to see that there's a massive mental health crisis and COVID blew the lid off that. Having been in the ecosystem for a long time, having had a healthcare background and starting to see deal flow, it, it put all together all the right ingredients to form a VC fund around this concept. So that was really the genesis of Palo Santo. I like it, you know, and really it's, 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 you saw an opportunity, but really I love the piece about how you have your own personal understanding of it. And I think that piece alone is what's making, you know, a lot of this stuff more accessible in the first place. So just people coming out and realizing that first of all, there is a problem or I have a problem or I know somebody that has a problem and is bringing awareness to that. And so, you know, as I always preach a lot, you know, awareness is the first step. And I think now that we're getting that awareness and especially with COVID becoming aware that it is so prevalent, it is, you know, it's, it's refreshing to see that there are legitimate companies out there that are starting to formulate and look to address some of these problems. And I, and I, I, I really agree with you. You know, we're going to tie, we're going to talk about this later about, you know, the path that psychedelics are going to take, whether it's a healthcare approach or recreational approach. And the more I dig into this, you know, it is becoming clear that I think the healthcare route is probably proper just because I think all of us, first of all, have probably experienced psychedelics and it's not a simple, it's not as simple as taking CBD or smoking a joint. It's not. It's much Someone more. Someone's a better ass is kicked by psychedelics. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> you realize, okay, this is why I need a therapist. In the room. Right. You know, this is why exactly. I probably need a guide. For this exactly. One. And you know, so. that's a pretty basic understanding and a discussion around it. But um, that's the basics of it really is that anybody who's done it and, and experienced these things realizes that it is a serious thing and something that should be serious and there should be some some framework. And so I know I don't want to give too much of our of our talk away and we're going to discuss some of that later. But um, yeah, yeah. That, well, and, and to your point, too, I mean, I think another thing is there's a lot of interactions between different drugs, too. I mean, you think about how Molly, you know, MDMA can contraindicate other medications. I mean, that's across the board. I think having a deep pharmacological understanding of these um, is important. And, and I, you know, I am wary of being snobbish about spaces and kind of punting everything to the experts because the experts are can be wrong in some domains. But I think we've got to lean on some of that expertise. I mean, the more you dig into the pharmacology of these substances, it is incredibly complex. Um, and it's it's not easy for the layperson to just understand that after reading the Michael Pollan book, yeah. even for example. So I, I think there are needs for some safety guards in place because people do get hurt and people have been hurt yeah. too. Yeah. And we don't want a 1960s repeat. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Lucy. Yeah, yeah really. 
Yeah, exactly. Well, we even talk about that a lot with like microdosing because that's like the new thing nowadays, you know, and we even see a lot of influencers just online, you know, being like, oh, microdose, microdose. But there's a lack of understanding and education behind it. And if we're just pushing everybody to microdose, but nobody really understands what microdosing is, it could really be dangerous. So I do think, you know, that might be a better method, you know, for the types of things that we're talking about. But let's go back a little bit, you know, talking about mental health. I do think COVID has brought it more to the forefront, you know, lately. I mean, a lot of people talk about it nowadays. And I know a couple years ago, talking about mental health was kind of taboo and nobody really wanted to admit that they had a problem. And now it's like, okay, you can get a therapist or you have these mental health issues. Like, what can we do to fix these things? So where do you think and how do you think that psychedelics is well positioned to tackle this problem? Yeah, I mean, I think... the biggest area where it's it's ripe to tackle the problem is just the you know the rapidness of the effect of psychedelics. You think about you know, the current standard of care. You have can go on antidepressants if you're suffering from depression. That's going to take three to six weeks to set in if it even does set in. You can do talk therapy. That takes an incredible amount of time. I mean, for a lot of people, just adoption of those techniques is really limited. Getting people to even engage in that um, is very limited. And that's why a lot of people don't even seek mental health care in the first place, because the set of options is is incredibly lacking. So I think that is compelling that, I mean, from one or two sessions with psilocybin, for example, you really could be in long-term remission from depression. Um, that's, that's a very compelling story right there. I, and I think that's very appealing to a lot of patients. So um, does that answer your question a bit, Lucy? If I, I mean, I think um, yeah. it's one area. And then you go down the line of, I mean, the multitude of psychedelics and variety of indications that well, these could really go after. Let's dive into those a little bit. Cause I know some of the companies that you guys invest in are focused on like MDNA and ketamine. So I'm not really familiar with those two as much. So maybe explain a little bit more how those could be helpful. Yeah. So MDMA seems to be remarkable for addressing PTSD. And then the statistics are suggesting something like 76, 80%. The percentages vary, I think, depending on the clinical study or what phase the the study is at currently um, or what stage they're at in that clinical study. But um, in that range of 80% efficacy rates for treatment-resistant PTSD, for example, for MDMA or ketamine, um, very remarkable treatment for depression as well. Not quite as durable, it seems. So the people have to keep coming back to ketamine therapy. That's the only disappointing part relative to psilocybin. There could be, it could be a more durable effect there. Um, but ketamine too, I, I have heard alcohol use disorder. There's some interesting research on mechanisms of action there that um, seem to suggest it could be really helpful for treating alcoholism. Um, and then Ibogaine is another compound we haven't talked about as well. Opioid use disorder, it seems to be highly effective there. 5-MeO-DMT is another interesting one, separate from DMT, but could be useful for depression. There's a number of companies evaluating for depression. We're investors in Beckley SciTech. Um, they are working with 5-MeO-DMT. I have also heard some data points where it may be effective for um, abusers of stimulants. So whether it's methamphetamine, cocaine, um, those sorts of addictions. 5-MeO anecdotally seems to potentially be effective for treating that. And ayahuasca, a lot of people, I mean, ayahuasca is kind of, you know, literally and figuratively the mother of all drugs in some ways. And people claim to be, you know, cured of a lot of different ailments from that too. So as you go through the list, I mean, wide variety of indications across a wide variety of compounds. um, And it makes it really compelling. 
Yeah. You know, and really to back that up, you know, I know there's a lot of clinical studies being done, you know, as we speak to, to further kind of the data that's out there and, and develop, you know, some type of, uh, you know, efficacy for these things. But um, my experience is, uh, you know, I helped start the Institute of Cannabis Research in CSU Pueblo and is only the second federally funded institute to, uh, to you know, study cannabis. And that was kind of difficult on its own. And we had to do a ton of research on cannabis to even get the funding and to show the legislator that, you know, this was legit and that we could develop pilot studies and, and kind of do these things. And, and one notable thing that I always talk about is that we already crossed paths with a ton of these compounds while we were looking into the cannabis stuff. And there was a ton of research that's already been done on ketamine. And, and uh, you know, Justin and I were having a conversation before this. And I mentioned to him that my professor would always talk about how, you know, CBD and cannabis really was just there to like knock the door down uh, to open the door for, you know, psychedelic compounds. And that really he always looked at MDMA as being uh, kind of the hallmark or a really accessible compound in the future to treat um, some of these things that we were just, you know, applying cannabis to. And, uh, and, and so just to kind of reiterate a point here is just that, you know, none of this stuff is, is necessarily just not like we're just discovering it in the last 10, 20 years, really. There's a lot of history, a long history of use of these medicines, not just in, in the clinical standpoint, but also in a spiritual and, mm-hmm. and a cultural standpoint as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And it's something like over a thousand research papers across 40,000 human subjects back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, they were really poorly done studies. They weren't (laughs) double blind placebo studies, but it still gives you somewhat of a directional sense of what these can accomplish and, um, you know, offered a lot of relief to a lot of patients even back then. So the, the data is quite remarkable. And so why do you think now it's becoming more prevalent? These companies are starting to, you know, do this type of work. Why why now? So a confluence of a few forces. One, COVID, I think, has thrown gasoline, not just gasoline, rocket fuel on on the mental health crisis. And people are kind of desperate for any solution. So, you know, whereas psychedelics were anathema before, it's kind of an attitude of we will evaluate any and all options on the part of citizens and regulators. So, COVID was without a doubt a key catalyst. And like, this has been one of, one of the only silver linings of COVID in a way of this space has taken off way quicker than I ever thought it would. I mean, you talked to me two years, we got into this four years ago and everyone was still having this debate of, could you even have a viable for-profit model around psychedelics or will this only be the purview of non-for-profits? So COVID was a big catalyst. I do think there's some other clues, too, that not a lot of people have talked about in this space. I think another big one is, you know, when Sasha Shulgin was doing his research. Are you guys familiar with Sasha Shulgin, by the way? We're not. At all. He wrote a book, um, Pical and Tikal. He's been one of like the OGs in psychedelic chemistry and cooking up a lot of he um, he, ref, uh, you know, he he resynthesized MDMA after it had been lost for quite some time. Um, 2CB was one of the compounds that he was the inventor of. It's kind of called one of Sasha Shogun's finest. When he was doing this, he would cook up compounds and test it on himself. He didn't have like human, <laughs> you know, yeah, I know, ballsy move, right? <laughs> yeah, that's he didn't have, Yeah, he didn't, he didn't have the good thing. You didn't get like an embalmer in there or something like that. But he had human, you know, we, or we now have like human cell tissue lines, for example, that you can run a lot of assay data on for binding affinity, antagonism, agonism. You can do assessments for toxicity. I mean, all of that, all those pharmacological capabilities, we really didn't have much of that in in even the 60s and 70s, -hmm. as far as my understanding goes. So our understanding of the mechanisms of action underlying these has advanced so much more than we previously had. And you can show that to regulators that I think that's also shifted the tide quite a bit, that if you can show some real, you know, sound pharmacology 
to explain why these seem to be working so well in the brain. I think that also sways regulators a lot. And that's what swayed me also. When my stoner friends were telling me in college, I got to do mushrooms, <laughs> it wasn't convincing to me. And people will tell you I was the last person you think would have ever tried these things um, back in college data that I think moved the needle for me. And I think it will for a lot of people. So how does that work? You know, since you're investing in companies that aren't technically federally legal, what does that landscape look like? How does this all pan out? Yeah. So interesting you bring that up. And I think that's been another interesting loophole. One, why we've actually liked psychedelics more than cannabis as a thesis. Not that I'm biased, of course. So Mm -hmm. don't mean to rip on cannabis, but, you know, cannabis, a lot of people in the cannabis world have been pursuing this path of, state legalization, and then maybe someday, you know, maybe we'll achieve federal legalization, but that's going to take a long time. And, you know, you know, in the age where there's still a lot of people who wish Trump was president, you're going to have a tough time getting a substantial majority of people to agree to that. So the the going by ballot box is, I think, a very slow route. What you can do with psychedelics, and we've seen this with plenty of other compounds, even if it's scheduled by the DEA, if you take a scheduled compound through clinical trials, and you find a medical use case for it, it is no longer by definition schedule one. That's why cocaine is a schedule two drug. It's not schedule one. Mm -hmm. Cocaine is a numbing agent. So there actually is a no medical use case. Same goes for psychedelics. So, I mean, if you find a medical use case, it could be prescribed by a doctor um, for a a given indication. And it is by, you know, it's de facto legalized in that sense. And we've seen this in a lot of cases, Zyrem, um, which was generically known as sodium oxypate, which was basically a date rape drug. Sorry to use the, the harsh terms there, but back in the 60s, it had a tragic past. It was actually Jazz Pharma found it actually did have medicinal use cases when used in a healthy way. That got rescheduled. Um, Marinol, mm-hmm. um, I mentioned Zyrem, Syndros is another one, which for T, you know, kind of THC analogs, Epidiolex. Mm-hmm. You guys may be familiar with GW Pharma. So there's a lot of precedent of people who have followed this path, clinical pathway. You find a medical use case. And if you get FDA approval, the DEA defers to the FDA um, on those items. So it'll still be scheduled, but it'll get a lower scheduling um, and can be used for medical use cases. That's interesting. And, and you know, that's really where you know, you guys come in because I've heard that from the cannabis side of, you know, that's where, you know, my background really kind of led me to this point. But, you know, the, the, the conversation around cannabis and why they didn't necessarily want to go their route was just the cost of clinical trials was so high and that uh, the potential for return or, or, you know, just the whole long list of things um, that go along with it. But just the cost alone of just clinical trials and, and doing those things was just not advantageous, I guess, for a lot of people or they just didn't see the necessary uh, you know, burden to take that on. But I do think it makes yeah. a lot more sense for for psychedelics, especially when we're discussing it in more of like a clinical setting versus a recreational, because uh, if it is going to go to that route, you have to have the clinical trials and the, and the data, like you're saying. And so um, yeah. I'm glad you pointed that out. It really makes a lot more sense now. Yeah. And it is a good point. That is the one big trade-off is, you know, clinical trial, full clinical trial, phase one, two, and three to get to approvals can cost you anywhere from a hundred to probably 200 million dollars, wow. you know? So it is, it is an expensive endeavor. I think Janssen, when they advanced Spravato, which is the brand name of S-ketamine, um, which hit the market two years ago or so. I mean, I think that trial was two, a little over $200 million. So that is the trade-off. Um, the flip side, you look at a GW Pharma type outcome, what happened there? I mean, GW sold to Jazz Pharma for $7 billion. Um, and they went more of a, you know, it was a medicinal cannabinoid pathway that they followed. So there was, you know, there was a lot of upside for investors in that. So, you know, I, I do think there's probably enough upside and the market potential is so large that it does justify 
those clinical trial costs in many cases. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think a lot of these companies too look at the long term versus, uh, you know, I think what we see in cannabis, unfortunately, is a lot, a lot of short term thinking and thinking of like three to five years for return versus, uh, you know, you know, these other stuff is could be like 10, 20 years as far as an investment return or um, at yeah. least, you know, you got to be patient. You got to be really patient <laughs> yeah. with the FDA. Yeah, yeah really. And that kind of leads us to this next question of, and this is starting to really percolate a lot now of like this general concept of, you know, the recreational route versus the clinical route and, uh, you know, the evolution of psychedelics industry. And we just want to get your thoughts on, you know, the line between big pharma and synthetically derived compounds and, you know, why one might be better than the other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, a big reason we go for is, is they deem it GMP grade is you can get more consistent dosing. You know what you're getting in the product. I mean, when you're doing naturally derived, the you know the active levels of you know, the the compound or, or API to use the pharmaceutical term. I mean, it, it fluctuates so much, and I think even mushroom growers can attest to that. And they're like, oh, this flush was really good. This this was a weak flush. But for a patient, that's really tough. I mean, when you're trying to really titrate your dosing or you're trying to figure out what's optimal when that needle's moving so much that makes it a lot more difficult. So, um, that's where we like the synthetic route and, and, you know, going, you know, going through a, a chemical synthesis process. And, and I think that's important. Um, but hopefully that does that kind of address that question a bit, hopefully of, yeah. Um, and and I mean, that's, and, you know, we totally understand that. And we were actually speaking with Justin before of just, you know, even the nature of setting up a clinical trial where you're trying to do even like a double blind or placebo or anything. I think the first yes. step to that whole entire process is a standardized dosage. And you can't get that, like you just mentioned, if you're even if you're taking, um, you know, like a psilocybin or or, you know, a mushroom or something, you just don't know how much psilocybin is in there. And even as far as like, you know, you go as far as like acid or something, if somebody's taking acid or even MDMA, you just off the street, there's, there's not a lot of ways to figure out, you know, what the dosage of that is. And then on top of that, what the dosage should be for, uh, your body weight or body weight or your chemistry or, um, that's the one thing that I always preached coming out of, you know, my, my studies was just that everybody's brain chemistry was completely different and what might work for one person may not even work for the other person. And, uh, I just saw that from the route of like my ADHD and, and trying different medications to try to combat that. It's like some medications did nothing. Some made it worse. Um, some made it great. And it was just really hard to try to, you know, titrate, like you said, and then really pinpoint the exact compound and, and the problem that's going on in your brain. And so just yeah. to even get to the point of, if, you know, addressing these real issues of like depression or anxiety or, um, you know, any of those, you know, chronic depression or uh, treatment resistant depression, you're going to have to have a compound that you can properly dose. And then also not just properly dose, but properly used to study different uh, types of people and, and, you know, brain chemistries and stuff to figure out what does it even look like to try to treat this stuff. Yeah. Well, if you're going to go, yeah, if you're going to go a clinical trial pathway, the FDA is going to require very refined, consistent, you know, dosing and, and um, API there. So that's where I know some are working on kind of organic extraction methods. I think that's probably a fool's errand from a regulatory standpoint. Maybe it has some bearing in, in the recreational realm. Some people talk about the entourage effect and there could be biosystem and um, other lesser compounds, you know, it in these that that also have a therapeutic benefit but i'm in full agreement you know that i I think for better for worse that's what the fda wants and and the reason they want it is you need to try to they're trying to explain they're trying to figure out what explains the medical effect here and the moment you muddy the data with a lot of different compounds it's tough to know what's explaining what and you can take combination products through the fda process 
but that gets even more expensive from a clinical trial standpoint thing, because usually you have to run multi-way trials to figure out, do any of the isolated compounds explain the clinical effect? And then together, is there a synergistic effect? And the cost can really add up there. Um, so it, yeah, yeah. I echo all your points. Okay. Well, I'm on the other side of this fence though. So I'm yeah. more of like the side of like big pharma's bad and like all natural plant <laughs> wellness and all of that. Yeah. So let's hold up for a second. She's got to play yeah. devil's That's advocate. Play, yeah. <laughs> no, I totally agree. I mean, I totally understand the need for the clinical trials and having to have dosage and proper doses, especially if you're talking about, you know, coming in and making sure that these people have the correct dosage. I totally get that. And I, understand mm -hmm. that. But you're also going to have people on the flip side who it's like, you're taking the plant from the people, you're taking a plant from, you know, all these ancient cultures who have been utilizing this plant medicine for hundreds and thousands of years. And now you're using it for profit and you're just synthesizing it. So what is your yeah. response to that? Yeah, my, I, I hear you on it. My, my response is I think there's you know, taking inspiration from nature, nature is a critical part in the value chain here. That is a critical first link in the value chain here. But, you know, for pain, we no longer ingest willow bark, for example. You know, nature didn't design drugs for human consumption. Nature designed drugs for some specific evolutionary purpose for that organism that is secreting or, or producing that compound. So, you know, the Bufel various toad didn't produce 5-MeO with us in mind. You know, mushrooms didn't produce psilocybin with us in mind either. Actually, 2A agonists can be toxic for some, man for some mammals out there. So that's why you can't do research on psychedelics in rabbits, for example. So these were not designed for hu with humans in mind. And there are a lot of limitations on the naturally derived compounds for human consumption. So Going back to that willow bark analogy, for example, I mean, we got aspirin out of that, right? I mean, we took inspiration from nature, but, you know, to get to get a, a, a relieving effect from that and a, a pain relief out of that, you had, to, you had to ingest a lot of it. It produced quite a bit of nausea for people or vomiting is my understanding. I and mean, there were a lot of commercial limitations to that, where an improvement on it actually was really good for humans. And I think the same goes for psilocybin, for example, and a lot of these compounds um, they're interesting, but I do think there's a lot that can be improved on. A, people don't necessarily want to go on a six-hour journey. There's no evidence to suggest that a three- or four-hour journey isn't just as therapeutic, for example. These also activate receptors um, that could be somewhat toxic. I mean, we definitely know with Ibogaine that is toxic. So in the in the case of Ibogaine, Ibogaine is one where like, I'm, I'm more than happy to wrestle that away from Mother Nature and find a better form of Ibogaine because people have died. And a lot of people yeah. died from you know, heart, it's called herg inhibition. So it causes heart toxicity. But even for the classic tryptamines, a lot of them seem to be agonists at the 5-HT2B receptor, which does, it can produce valveopathies if you're using it on a more chronic basis. And that is one risk around microdosing where we're just not sure yet. Um, so if you could produce a more curated kind of designer compound where you limit the 2B effect, you still have the 5-HT2A effect, which seems to explain the psychoactivity and also that seems to be the source of most of the therapeutic and antidepressive benefit here. That would be a much more superior compound. So I guess my answer is a little bit in the middle of I think nature is a really good source of inspiration. I also think one thing that with a lot of these compounds um, that's critically important, especially from indigenous use, is ceremony, you know, group usage or group support. All of those factors, we know that mental health isn't just about taking a pill. So whether you take psilocybin 
a chemically synthesized, you know, from a mushroom, a chemically synthesized form of psilocybin or a psilocybin analog in the future that a chemist cooked up that um, seems to be superior to the other, the previous two. If you're doing that with group support, ceremony, all those factors, you're probably going to get a significantly enhanced therapeutic outcome. So I think that is another, you know, there's a lot of sources of inspiration from tradition, but hopefully that's not too much of a politician's answer there. I think the answer lies somewhere in between. Um, but there's a lot to borrow from both worlds, from, you know, Western medicine and traditional medicine here. Yeah. And do you feel like you're seeing that these companies that you invest in, they're coming from like an authentic standpoint where they're really trying to, you know, solve this mental health issue? Or are they coming surely from a fact of, I see an opportunity and there could be profit? I think most are coming at it from the right place. I mean, I th one thing I think working in this field, it's really important to have had some work with these medicines. Otherwise, it's so tough to understand. And you can definitely see that line in the sand um, interacting with folks in the field that um, it just people come at it from a different mentality. Because there's also a bit of a capitalism 2.0 mindset here, too, of not being a vulture about things, not just negotiating the best deal, being founder friendly all those aspects. And I'm not always seeing good actor behavior. I mean, this is kind of, I think the original guard really well-intentioned, you're seeing a new guard come in to this field. Um, and it's, it's been a, a messy world. So the founders we invest, in, we are definitely looking for mission aligned founders and also mission aligned funds to invest alongside. And, and I do hate to say it, but there has been bad actor behavior, whether it seems like patent trolling, um, whether it's, you know, a, there's just been a lot of money made in kind of the the can Canada cannabis crew that's also crept into this world, which I think has more of a pump and dump mentality of let's go public on Canadian stock exchanges as quick as we can. And at some point, someone, you know, some granny or retail investors left holding the bag there. Um, we try to stay away from that stuff. And we really want this to advance in the right way. So um, I would so I'd say a lot of our founders, I think, are very mission aligned. I mean, you look at Jonathan Sporn. At Gilgamesh, for example, or Matthew Bag at the Tactogen folks and Luke over at Tactogen. I mean, they definitely, definitely have their heart in the right place. Mendel Keelan at Wave Paths has been doing research in this field with Robin Carhart Harris for years. So across the board, a lot of our founders have a really deep attachment to these. Um, and I do think that is critical in advancing this. Yeah, no, I respect that. You know, hearing you talk about it and just having a basic understanding of you know neuroscience myself, I think you're well versed, and especially coming from like the angle of finance, you know, I'm pretty impressed with your ability to speak this language and then understand it really under the surface because it's not as simple, like you said, as taking a pill or or going and grinding up some mushrooms and drinking a smoothie or something one night. There's a lot more that happens within your brain, within your body, and within like your consciousness that I think we all have to be uh, cognizant of, really, because. You can have a lot of damage and then you can, you know, if your ultimate goal is to heal, I think that we should be providing our bodies with the tools that are necessary to, to provide that healing and, um, yes. you know, cut out any unnecessary risks that we can. One thing that I did want to kind of circle back on because it really reiterates the points of, you know, a synthetically derived compound was 5-MeO-DMT uh, with a Bufo Oliverius frog. And I think it was... Um, it was a Hamilton's Hamilton. pharmacopoeia did a great oh, episode on this, and, episode. <laughs> you know, and <laughs> yeah. you know, a lot of people, yeah. you know, they, there's, they're on the fence about Hamilton in general and some people love him. So I'm not here to debate that, but I think the point he made with, who hates uh, Hamilton? <laughs> we have had, <laughs> we've, we've had, some, a, people we've had some people on the show that <laughs> really? are not fond of him. Interesting. All right. All right. So we leave it to themselves, but I think that he did a really great job of this episode.
episode of just explaining why a synthetically derived uh, 5-MeO DMT would be important because what are people doing? They're going out and basically ravaging uh, the Bufo oliveris frog population to try to you know, just get this compound. Whereas now we're, we're cutting down this population of frogs and, and doing really harm uh, to the ecosystem. Um, for, and, and, and then you think about the concept of like capitalism and people are upset and it's like, we're out here destroying a huge population of frogs for nothing more than, you know, either personal gain or, or, um, you know, healing under that sense, but we're really doing damage to, to nature. Whereas, you know, this compound can be synthesized in a lab for maybe a fraction of the cost of what it costs to go out and, and either grow these frogs or, or hunt them down or anything. And it really just made way more sense to, to try to find a synthetically derived, um, you know, constituent of 5-MeO-DMT uh, to do that because it just it didn't really make sense otherwise to ravage a population of frogs. I completely agree. Well, and peyote also. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, exactly. Know, that cat, that has been over-harvested. So, I mean, that's another issue. I mean, you, you face that. Mushrooms are probably not going to get over-harvested anytime soon. They, they grow <laughs> in a lot of places, but um, I'm in full agreement. I think the total other area I, I missed earlier of, I, I think that's an area where the pharma world and chemical synthesis can actually do some good um, as it's a much more sustainable approach. Mm-hmm. So, no doubt. Yeah. So, you know, we covered that and I think that was like a good just antidote to kind of add to it. But let's get into, you know, Palo Santo and what you guys are doing and kind of future looking things and what's going on right now. And, um, you know, one of the main things is like, let's just start off and talk about, you know, one of the most innovative companies uh, you think you have in your portfolio and just um, explain to us, you know, maybe a few of the other companies you have that are in your portfolio and what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, this is like picking a favorite child, you know, like I, I love all of them equally in the portfolio, <laughs> or at least don't tell the others I said, I didn't you know, pick the favorite. I mean, there, there's, there's definitely no favorite. You know, what's interesting about our space is you, people judge you by each individual investment, but for us, we have to think about this on a portfolio basis. I mean, I, I don't fully know which way the ecosystem is going to go. You know, does the legalization wave take hold? way quicker than we ever thought. And then a lot of the biotech investments are rendered moot. I mean, it's just, it's so tough to tell. So we, you know, we pick different investments knowing the future is very murky, um, but knowing that, it, you know, if the future heads any one of multiple ways, we're going to do really well because one or two of these companies, even if others fail, others are going to do incredibly well. So um, I'd say maybe I can pick a few favorite children. We'll let you, lot. we'll I let mean, you slide. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. If you can, yeah, if you can let me just so, so no one holds my feet too much to the fire there. Yeah. No, I don't get any beef from portfolio companies. I mean, on one L in one realm, you brought up five MEO DMT. I mean, that one has a really deep place in my heart and, and I found some tremendous therapeutic benefits. Um, and so I, I really wanted to see someone advance it and do it in the right way. And I think I love what Beckley SciTech's doing. And I think they're doing it in a much more mission-aligned way. Um, and GH Research seems to have kind of gone rogue in some ways. But it, I've, last I read, I read no prep work, no integration. And you know that was part of the value proposition that it's going to let... Not only are you limiting the duration of the trip, but you're limiting the work around it. And I would, if anything, I'd say... The trip on that one is the shortest of all of them. The work is the longest of that. And I think GH is missing the mark there. So I really like, GH is not in the portfolio. I really like what Beckley SciTech's doing. I'm, I'm glad someone picked up the torch on that one. Um, I also really like the, the new drug discovery efforts. I mean, I just do think there is a lot of room for improvement. Um, like I said, nature's provided a lot of inspiration, but there's a lot of ways to improve these. I, I want to get to a world where for us, we get these, we're bought and sold. But like for my grandma, 
to get her comfortable with doing psychedelics, that's going to take, that's a much bigger hurdle to get over. So there's not all, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of adoption curves we still need to get up. So, and I think the next generation psychedelic drug discovery efforts um, are another critical area. So Delix, we just invested in um, Dave Olson there, really like what they're doing for inventing what we call third generation psychedelic compounds. So second generation improves on the delivery methods of gen one. Third generation is like true analogs where you're doing some interesting chemistry and cooking up new chemical matter there. So doing interesting stuff, Gilgamesh, same deal, working on NCEs, whether it's across ketamine, ibogaine, um, and then also a serotonergic microdose a la psilocybin. Um, and then I'm very complimentary of Eleusis too. Eleusis bridges the gap between you know, kind of two worlds. One is, um, you know, th that second generation of improving delivery methods. And then the other is third generation and having the Nichols team on board. Chuck Nichols is an advisor to Palo Santo. He also, you know, he helps out with Eleusis. His dad, Dave Nichols is there. I think they are some of the best pharmacologists and medicinal chemists, um, in the field. I mean, you know, Dave Nichols was right there with Sasha Shulgin. Mm -hmm. So they've got a great, they will have a great drug discovery engine someday with Eleusis. So that's in the biotech portfolio. Last thing I'll mention too, Journey Clinical is another company we just invested in. I really like what they're doing I, around ketamine therapy. I see a lot of companies trying to own the process. They want to build clinics. They want to train clinicians. They want to own everything. And we already have a ton of psychotherapists out there who can deliver these medicines. We already have an infrastructure of independent okay. psychotherapists who don't want to work for the man. They don't want to work for a big corporation. And journey makes that that makes that journey, for lack of a better word, more frictionless hmm. for those folks. So they, it connects them with compound pharmacists, gets them trained up, and really empowers individual clinicians um, to offer this in their practice, rather than having to go to a mind bloom or um, you know other services out there that seem to kind of own the full process here. So those are a few a few names. I'm sure there's others that I'm I'm forgetting or missing, but I love all my children too. <laughs> so. Uh, I, I particularly like that one. It's like not a big piece to the puzzle, but it's important. Uh, the company that works on the music specifically for the trips. Wave Pass. That's, That's cool. a good pass. Yes. Wave Pass is another big one. I am a huge believer as someone I played music my whole life, started with violin, oh, then great. moved to bass guitar, guitar. You can see the ukulele in the background. <laughs> my apartment's is. getting kind of dark here now as the sun sets, but <laughs> Um, I think music's critically, critically important. I mean, people can attest two things. One, a bad playlist can completely <laughs> yeah. ruin a trip or two, a playlist you've heard for the fourth freaking time. And you've heard, you've heard that song like one too many, one too many times that can be incredibly annoying too. And I think produce a bad or just kind of an annoying trip where it's not really therapeutic. It's a distracting trip. Um, so I really like what Mendel's going after there. Yeah. And weight pass. I think it's really important. And I think a lot of people underweight it, whether they're just totally. not as attuned to music, but like, I, I think it's important, you know? Yeah. Some totally. people, there, there's been mixed opinions on that. I'm very, very pro weight pass. Yeah. No, that's great. I think of like when you go to a concert and you, you know, you're playing the song and it, they take you through the journey, the ups and the downs. Mm -hmm. And you're like, I wasn't even planning on going there. I didn't need, know I needed to go there, but they took you there. And I could see how yeah. important that would be for being in a journey and like doing really deep work. So I think that's super cool. Well, think about, you know, our generation, you know, a lot of people's first experiences with psychedelics were probably at like a festival and a music festival for that. And uh, I yes. think just, you know, it, it ha certainly has a place. It's not just, you know, something to be forgotten about. There's certainly a place for music and all of this and healing. And, and I think a lot of people gravitate towards music. You know, some people probably say, I listen to music every day. It's probably the one thing they do every day. And so I think that, uh, 
you know, totally. If you can, if you can incorporate that in and have some stuff that's actually designed for that, then I think that's pretty beneficial. I think oh, it's totally. cool though. I just wanted to comment for you because it has to be really fun for you to be at the forefront of all this and to be able to kind of pick and choose and kind of sift through this stuff and just really, a lot of stuff just percolates in front of you of like the future. And so I think it's really cool to position you're in just to see what all is out there and see the, the creativity and the ingenuity and the innovation really of all these companies and what's really coming down the pipeline. Yeah, it's it's very cool to be at the forefront. Sadly for diligence, I companies don't send me compounds to try. I wish they did, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that would make the job a lot more fun. Yeah. But um, it, it's it's cool. I mean, I I do hope we'll we're, we'll live in a world 10, 20 years from now that looks vastly different. And I think I just think the ability for these to make us more empathetic, um, you know, to to make us more caring, all these facts, just to Put us in a nicer world. I mean, I'll, I'll get political here. I mean, coming out of the Trump era, I think that's riled so much of us up. I hope I don't offend people by saying that. But, you know, I just there's there's so much anger out there. And I think these, you know, whether you have a diagnosis of mental health, I mean, we, we kind of we all have our own shit to deal with, for lack of a better word. I mean, in my mind, your total addressable market here is everyone aside from, you know, kind of the the you know, the, the populations where it's a huge risk, like schizophrenics or, or those, but that's a very small number of people. But um, yeah, I really hope these can make us more creative and um, the world needs them. That is for sure. So it's very cool to be at the forefront of the space and seeing it come to light and being part of the ecosystem that's really helped building a bigger, better world here too. Yes. I love that. Yeah, I, I, love can, it. I agree. Yeah, I think uh, we're seeing a huge paradigm shift really in a lot of different areas. And I think mental health is one of those. And it's really fun to be a part of it from our angle. And uh, we really appreciate you and your expertise and really the really the ethos that you're, you know, you're approaching this with, you know, it makes me feel better um, after speaking to you about, you know, how you're how you're going about this and, and just knowing that somebody like you is is really helping to kind of push this along. So, you know, yeah, thank I you. I appreciate it. Yeah. One, one last comment I'll make too. And I think something not as, not as many people talk about is, I mean, this, this generation has a lot of problems. You know, the baby boomers handed us a lot of crap to deal with that we're going to be the generation that has to solve here. Um, and I think we have to be incredibly creative and really completely rethink and revamp old systems um, that have been in place for a long time. But that's, that's a much tougher task rather than thinking incrementally thinking in orders of magnitude or really thinking, um, thinking orthogonally about things. And we have a lot of drugs for stimulants and productivity in this world. We have caffeine, we have <laughs> yeah. amphetamines in the form of, you know, Ritalin, Adderall, Vyvanse. There's not a lot of great analogs for creativity, mm -hmm. you know, like drugs out there to make you more creative or think in those creative ways. And that's another area where I don't know how you diagnose that, you know, that's not a disease we created yet of like you lack creativity, you know, can you pathologize that, um, you know, but, but, you know, that, jokes aside there, I mean, I do think there's a tremendous use case for these two in that realm of there's, we have a lot of big problems we're going to have to solve ourselves or think ourselves out of here. And I think these can be a really good tool and a catalyst for that as well. Um, and I think it's another area not enough people are talking about, but I'm, I'm excited yeah. to see what the next 10 years have to hold. That was really cool. Yeah. I yeah. love that. That's a great point. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. All right, Tim. Well, we have one final question for you. We are the lit and lucid <laughs> podcast. So are you lit or are you lucid? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I'd probably I'll go with lucid, <laughs> go with lucid. These things have really cleaned my mind. These, are clear, <laughs> these, these psychedelics have cleared out the cobwebs. That is for sure. So 
Um, but talk that. to me next time I'm on Molly. Maybe I'll be more <laughs> So <laughs> got to catch me it. on the right day. <laughs> <laughs> all right, That's Tim. It. Well, thanks so much for sharing. I know we all learned a lot from you today and we really appreciate it. Yep, likewise. Thanks yeah. so much, guys. All right, you guys, with that, I'm Lit. I'm Lucid. And that's it. Laters. Have you ever felt like you needed a midday boost? Something to keep the brain juices flowing, but not to the point of your head spinning? That was us just a few years ago, trying to balance the demands of life while still trying to be present for the things that bring the passion out of us, like our podcast. Jared and I normally record our podcasts after work and really started to dread them because we'd be burnt out by the time the recording came around. And I'll admit that sometimes we'd even skip the gym just to conserve our energy. Who wants to skip the gym? I don't, I don't like missing the gym. So we had to figure something out. Early last year, we started exploring the world of mushrooms and found a handful of ancient mushrooms really seemed to give us an edge. We spent the remainder of the year optimizing a blend of mushrooms, adaptogens, and CBD to give us the best of both worlds, to be more lit and lucid throughout the day. A little more energy, a little more cognition, and a healthy dose of stress relief. I sure know I can use more energy and focus to get through my day. Our Balance Blend capsules are handcrafted with love right here in Colorado, made with all natural ingredients, vegan and lab certified. And each serving contains 33 milligrams of Colorado-grown CBD, and we only use extracted mushrooms from 100% fruiting bodies in our blends, so you know it's the best. Ready to give them a try? Visit www.litlucid.com and use code LIT20 for 20% off your first order. 